So, going through the statement of faith, little by little, and being refreshed and reminded in terms of what we believe and why, at least here at New Covenant. And as Steve and I have discussed this over the years, we do know that things need to be added to it, and certainly we could add more scriptures, but there are a few things we'd like to add to it. So, a couple sections here, probably one on redemptive history and probably one on sovereign grace. We... Steve made this a long, long time ago uh, to maybe be a little broader than, um, than, than we would like now. Um, we like it. It's just I think we should probably add a few things to it that, def- that really kind of capture the essence of NCCF. So, All right, so let me pray and then we'll read that second point there. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we thank you for life and breath and all things. Lord, we're here breathing because you have willed it so, and that's humbling, and Lord, we are grateful. Uh, We're grateful, Lord, that you brought us together to open your word, to worship you in spirit and in truth, and we ask you, Father, that you would teach us, give us understanding, and cause our hearts to burn as we contemplate who you are and what you've done for creatures and for sinners. And uh, we praise you for all of your glorious goodness and your mercy in Christ. As in his name we pray, amen. Okay, so point two is where we are. And last time we were together, we really only got through this first part of there is only one true and living God. And we looked particularly at Isaiah and Deuteronomy, and how um, this exclu- the exclusivity of God um, is, um, is a powerful, um, it's just this powerful notion and thought that Isaiah brings forward, that God himself personally brings forward um, to the nation of Israel, at least in the book of Isaiah, to not only describe who he is, but to describe who he is relative to idols, that there is no other God. Um, there's that one section, I think it's Isaiah 45, where he says, I'm God, there is no other. Uh, as regards other gods, I know of none, or something like that. God says, I know of none. It's just interesting that he says that, you know, I know of none. It's kind of like if you were to go to an expert and ask them certain opinions about a, a given thing that they're an expert on, and you ask them because they know all about that particular topic, and they give you their answer. It's like, well, let's go to the Lord and ask him, hey, hey, Lord, is, is there any other gods out there? And he says, I know of none. And this is, this is from the Lord's vantage point, which is, is, is omniscient through and through. He says, I know of none. Tell your kids that. You know, tell your kids that. Hey, Dad, Mom, are there any go- other gods? What about all the, uh, these other religions? Well, why don't we just go ask the Lord? Isaiah 45, Lord, is there any other gods? I know of none, right? That's what we should be telling our kids. God himself says, I know of no other gods. So we worship the true and living God. Always so much more we could say on a given phrase here in our statement of faith, but we focused on that a bit. Um, Today we want to look at, try to get to the rest of it, that God is also a personal spirit 
who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being and attributes. So, so what we're talking about here is the, the essential character of God, that he is the true and living God, personal spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being and attributes. And as we go on next week um, in point three about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, you know, there's the reality is we could probably put, we could probably put three where two is and two where three is. It's sort of hard to know where to put these. And the reason I say that is because God essentially is father. Um, that is his essential identity as it, as it's presented to us. God is, God is father before he's creator, before he's redeemer, he is father. And that's a powerful, powerful notion. Um, yeah. He's always been father. Before there was creation, before there was anything, he's always been a father. Yeah, with respect to Trinity. Yeah, God is always God is triune, and I, what I mean essentially is that there's there's always been that relationship of father and son, and that God has always been that dynamic, that reality before time. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but we'll dig into more of that in maybe the next uh, week or two. So let's look at this idea of God as a personal spirit. And so to, to, uh, to Yarrow's point, sort of indirect point, dealing with the essential characteristics of, of God in his, in, his, in his own being. He is a personal spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's what point two sort of focuses on. So let's look at a personal spirit. So let's start in John four John four you know I mean I could just rattle this stuff off and make points and cite a scripture and read a verse but I don't know I just rather go to the context and look at it <clears throat> so you remember the passage here Jesus uh, making his way through Samaria and he has this interchange with this, this, uh, this woman who is surprised that Jesus, being a Jew, is speaking to her, who is a Samaritan. Um, and so, let's see here, where should we start? Let's start in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So, Jesus' interchange here with the woman is interesting. It's interesting on, obviously, several levels. But 
God here is said to be spirit. Jesus points this out and he's pointing this out in, in contradistinction to her notion that we're supposed to be worshiping God in a particular location. And God says, or Jesus says, well, God is spirit. And this God is spirit um, idea here is supposed to sort of check her in her thinking. And there are other things that are going to check her in her thinking as well, namely that Jesus is the Messiah, but also just this reality that God is spirit. And so what, what does this mean that God is spirit? Um, on the surface, I don't know, we, we read it and we think about it and we're like, okay, yeah, God's invisible. But when you begin to start thinking about the fact that God is not nothing, he is something, he is spirit, what do we make of that? It's kind of, a, it's kind of an elusive thought. We don't want to say that God is a force, right? Some, some impersonal force or a law of nature, right? He's not gravity, he's not mathematics. That's not who God is. God is a spirit. Yeah. But, you know, you, you think about what um, the way that popular movies depict that force out there, you know, Star Wars. Um, obviously, let the force be with you. They have an idea of this invisible principle going on in the universe that holds everything together or something like that, whatever the, whatever the, theology is of Star Wars. Um, but God is spirit. Um, how is it different than a force? Um, yeah. In John 4, when Jesus is talking about God is spirit, is there any notion here that you would see that he is impersonal? Jesus, when Jesus brings up God as spirit, he brings up God as spirit in the context of God seeking men to worship him, right? So one thing we, we have to understand about whatever it means that God is spirit, he is personal, right? He is a personal spirit. He seeks those to worship him in spirit and truth. You can't pray to a force. You can't pray to gravity, you know, or mathematics, but you can worship God who is a personal spirit. You know, um, yeah. Well, well, it's funny. You know, when you think about you're talking about material. When you think about God as spirit, too, we we probably I don't know about you, but when I think about it, it's hard for me not to think of like some mist, you know, or some gas, something like that, you know, something that's matter. But we have to realize that well, that's not it either. You know, he he's not he is not. He existed before matter as a personal spirit. And, um, and then you have Jesus saying things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, you know, so this spirit can be reflected. It can be emulated. Um, it has character to it um, or to him. So, yeah, God is, God is spirit is, it's, it's kind of elusive. It's, it's a little bit hard to define exactly. But what we want to say, though, is that whatever it means, it, does, it, does, it cannot mean that he can be localized, right? That he's only there or only there. Um, and um, I was just thinking of Psalm 139, 
where David says, where can I go from your spirit? And he says, if I go to the highest heavens, you're there. If I go to the bottom, you're there. And he doesn't say, if I go, if I go there, you see me as if God has like really good eyesight. He says, you're there, right? You're actually there. So, so this whole idea that God is spirit means it sort of enables his omnipresence, if that's a way to say it, um, and, 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 and he's personal. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. When you think about your own spirit, I mean, we have, you know, we're mind and body, spirit and body, soul and body, however you want to define it. But you think about your own spirit, um, it again becomes a little hard to grasp. You know, you, you look at um, philosophers or scientists try to describe what the mind is. Um, it's very challenging to figure it out. But it's the essence of really who you are, is that inner person. Um, and, um, and we're created that way. We're not only body. We're not only material. And we're not only inward. Yeah. Yeah, it's all intertwined. Yeah. Um, but I mean, as it is with so many things, you get to a point where you sort of run out of ways to describe it. I mean, um, and I was just thinking this morning about this reality of God being everywhere because God is spirit or God not being able to be localized because he is spirit, as Jesus points out here. Um, it's really fascinating because we don't want to go the pantheistic route and say God is everything because he's not that. He's separate from creation, and yet he's everywhere. So, I mean, again, you're, you're in the realm of mystery. God exists, and uh, I think we could say God exists. Well, I don't know if I would say that in a different dimension. I don't know. It, God is everywhere. That's he is personal spirit. Yeah, and I was just thinking that the, the reality is um, we're in a realm of mystery. Um, and, and what we're saying here is that God is in a unique category all by himself. He does not share this attribute with us in, 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 in that fullest sense. Um, he's, a, he's a personal spirit. And this is why we can pray to him anywhere. Um, and, um, and he can help us at any time, anywhere, because he is spirit. And this is why he can't be localized. This is why we don't want to say that building over there is God's house like God is localized there, right? Or God's sanctuary. Um, if we want to use that language at all, we, we, we'll let's point to ourselves because that's the spirit of God lives in us. Um, but ultimately in the scriptures, heaven is God's sanctuary. This is where his intense and imminent presence is. So, yeah, Ben. We have to go there, Ben. That's all right. No. Yeah, we're going to get a First Kings here in a second. Let's look at let's look at another place here. Um, let's see, Deuteronomy four. Anybody have anything else they'd like to say about personal spirit? Yeah, Kayla. It's interesting that Paul says, "I together with you, or I my spirit together with yours, delivered this man over to Satan." First Corinthians five. It's not pleasant, but. But, but it is interesting, you know, what do you mean, Paul, that my spirit together with you? That's interesting. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that Paul sort of floating over there in Paul's spiritual form, but there is some sort of connection. Yeah, some sort of connection there. I mean, Paul, of course, 
doing that to say, hey, my authority is stamped on what you're going to do casting this man out. But Do you think Jesus is getting at to the, the essence of the new covenant as well? That the, you know, it's no longer about you know, Yahweh being in a uh, temple or with a specific geographic people, but it's his spirit going out to all the world, to everything. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, I think there's... He's always, you know, he is the God of the universe and he's always everywhere. But like, in a, um, in a real sense, because he's talking about worship and he's talking about you know, people, that you know, his, he's, not limited, he's not limiting himself to one group of, of people anymore. Mm-hmm. There's probably an element of that, um, because he talks about not worshiping in Jerusalem and, and, and all of that. But, um, but we'd have to say that, you know, that whole Old Covenant, um, what can you say, it, Obviously, and I know you're not saying it sort of um, limited the character and being of God, and now it now expands out because of the new covenant. He limited himself to a group of people. Yeah. Yeah, but, but he doesn't really ground that, though, in the shift of history as much as he does in the being of God. Um, God is spirit. So he grounds it in this reality that that God is spirit and he can't be localized. He can't be domesticated. He's, you can't go say Israel's the holy land, really. I mean, at that time you could kind of because he was there in his intense presence and it was, like you say, he, he limited that to be his own sphere. But ultimately it's like like Ben was saying, Solomon builds the temple, God fills it and Solomon's thrilled, but then he's just like, yeah, but I mean, are you going to be here? Are you any closer to God there than you are here? No. Okay. So, so yeah, that, that's what I would, that's, that's kind of what I mean. All right, Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, 15 and 16. So Moses here reiterating God's commands, and, and um, especially as they're about to enter into the promised land, he recounts some of the history to them, and he's particularly recounting for them in Deuteronomy 4, the Sinai event when God shows up with fire and darkness and cloud and thick gloom. And then you remember that that point where God showed up in that manifestation. Um, God speaks to them out of that fire. And verse 12, chapter 4, Moses reminds them, Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the 10 commands commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Then the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you're going over to possess it. So, so Moses here highlights the fact that when God came down, he gave sort of these tangible manifestations of his glory, but you didn't see a shape, you know, you, you didn't see some defined shape that sort of gave you some parameters and contours of what God looks like or something like that. He shows up in clouds and darkness and fire. Um, it's interesting. Darkness, cloud, thick gloom, fire. What a sight. But then from this formless state, a voice comes out. You know, this voice comes out and he's speaking the commands. And from this, Moses applies the reality that God does not have form 
or did not manifest in form. Verse 15, watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole of heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. So, so God, so God through Moses highlights this fact that he has no form. And this particularly pertains to relating to idolatry, right? And warning against idolatry. So to rightly worship the Lord, we have to remember he has no form is, is the idea. And, and, and that the Lord is essentially worshiped by faith, not by icons, not by idols, and God is very specific that there be no images made of him. Very specific. And I think for several reasons. Uh, one of them I think is implicit here. You know, don't, don't make me in the form of a man or a woman or a created fish, bird, you know, those kinds of things. Because he does not want to be placed in a category of creature. Right? You, 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 you cannot place God in the category of, of that which he has made. Um, he, must be, he must remain creator and above creation if he is to be viewed rightly. Or, as Jesus says, to be worshipped in truth. Right? If you want to worship God rightly, you certainly don't want to domesticate him or diminish him into the realm of creator, or, or creation. Um, the minute someone says that God is a golden bull, or calf like Aaron did, his very being and nature is utterly diminished, utterly diminished. It's laughable, really, how these things happen in the Old Testament. You look at them, um, and, and when that happens, like I say, you're not worshiping God in truth. So I think that's one reason why God doesn't want to be no, you know, no images made of him because it'll utterly diminish his character and his being. And then you will no longer be worshiping the true God. Secondly, I think verse 20, notice what he says here. He says, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace in Egypt. So I think what he's saying here is that when you, when you look up to the sun and the moon, which is what he brings up, if you look up the sun and moon stars and you worship them and you serve them, you know, you're, 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 you're not worshiping me in truth anymore. And when you do that, you forget the fact that I'm the one who's brought you to myself. In other words, when you do that, you trade me in. You exchange me, you know, for inanimate created things. And, um, and so he goes on to say here, so watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and made for yourself and make for yourselves graven images in the form of anything which the Lord your God has commanded you. Verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
So when you begin to worship other things, sun, moon, created items, it invokes the anger of God because you've devoted yourself to something else other than him. And God takes this intensely personal. And so it's rooted in God's jealousy. Um, and it's good for God to be jealous. It's, it's because he has an immense love. And he's a consuming fire. So I think that's the other reason is God is protecting the, your right devotion. Um, because to worship anything else is spiritual adultery. And then I think another reason um, that's sort of implicit in all this is that when we make God in an image of a creature or worship created things, that faith component that we must have is removed, isn't it? It's totally removed. We live by sight if we're idolaters, right? If we're, if we're worshiping things under the sun, that is, we are, we are worshiping things we can control at some level. Um, and it betrays unbelief. This side of heaven, we relate to God by faith. And, um, and we wanna, when we want to make some God into something tangible, we want to do that to manipulate him or to manipulate our destiny or something like that. That's, that's, I mean, really, you look at all idol worshipers and it's sort of underlying is this whole idea of prosperity. Yes, yes. Yeah, he did, God did become a man and he did take on humanity, but the reality is, is that, um, the reality is, is that when we, when people worship created things other than the true and living God, who specifically shows up without a form, then they're betraying unbelief. They're, they're betraying a lack of faith and wanting to control their destinies and themselves. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, everything in, yeah, yeah, when you, when you hear um, Solomon say, well, God indeed dwell on the earth, you're like, yeah, I feel that, Solomon. I mean, God is everywhere. And then we're going to bring that out, how, okay, well, you did localize yourself as an infant, you know, at one point in a, the womb of a teenager. So, um, yeah, these things are amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, see, when, when, when it says in the Bible that Adam and Eve heard him come and they hit him, like he was just moving stuff around, or was he walking, or was he talking, or just it's Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Of course, a lot of that is, is not so much to get us to contemplate what he looked like as much as it is to just really yeah. show that relationship had been broken. broken yeah. yeah. And that's something that Adam and Eve... I mean, I'm, honestly, it's laughable, isn't it, that they would try to hide from God as if God didn't really know where they were. But, but at the same time, it shows how foolishness comes about with spiritual death. Yeah. In the cool of the day, yeah. Sure, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean you have Enoch walking with God post fall and then we walk with the Lord if you know the Lord, right? Um so Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, there are these manifestations 
So, but what we're talking about here is God in his essence. Um, and uh, if you want to say pre-Christ or, or whatever. So, 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8. But it's interesting to me that you really can't talk about God being a spirit without talking about idolatry. That's just what pops up. Um, or domesticating God. You can't. Jesus brings it out. The Old Testament brings it out. 1 Kings 8. So we kind of touched on God being a personal spirit, but God is also infinite. And when we talk about infinite, you're going to notice that that actual term does not come about in this particular text, but I think it's a good handle for what Solomon is, is going to try to describe God as or think about. So Solomon here dedicating the temple and in verse 27 he asks this question, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. 827. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house, house which I have built. So Solomon feels that tension. Um, Solomon feels that tension and he says this and he says, the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So the heaven of heavens, literally, cannot contain you. There's not a space big enough to contain God. You know, it's not like he's as big as Asia. You know, or, it's, or, it's, or he's as big as Alpha Centauri. That's pretty big. No, the highest heavens cannot contain him. You still can't put some sort of perimeter around him. You can't. One man said one time, God is not contained, he contains. And, and that starts to get at the reality of what we're talking about here. The highest of heavens cannot, he is infinite. And when we're talking about infinite, we're talking about size. We're talking about sort of dimensions. And when it comes to the dimensions of God, he's infinite. We have this big, huge um, world created for us, but an even greater universe that give us some sense of how big God is if we're saying that God can't be contained in any of it um, fully. That, that blows, you know, that, that goes beyond, um, that goes beyond finding out. It's, this is about his immensity. He has no limits. He has no limitations. Um, he is infinite, limitless, endless in space, impossible to measure or calculate. This is, this is our God. He's absolutely infinite. Psalm 145.3 is another one. Psalm 145.3. David here extolling the Lord, praising God. Verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. It's just unsearchable. Man, how we need to remember this. When we think that God is boring, or we think that he's not that great, or he's not that wise, or he's not that loving, or he's not that beautiful, God's greatness is absolutely un unsearchable. The great 
you think about it, the great figures of human history can be searched out. They can be studied. They can be researched. We can, we can figure out what made them great and why. At some level, we can. What acts they performed, what great ideas they had, the impacts of those ideas. We can search out those things. But God is infinite. His greatness, David says here, is unsearchable. We, we can't begin to fathom the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of God. Think of his wisdom to just create DNA or, or supernovas or, or just redemptive history. Um, his power to create this world in six days as a speck in the midst of a vast universe of billions of galaxies and trillions of stars. We cannot begin to look at each amazing creation and design and search it all out. His greatness is absolutely unsearchable. I mean, someone can give their whole life to just studying the human eye. Just the human eye. Let alone whatever we're not seeing on some distant star that's going on right now at this moment. God's greatness is absolutely unsearchable. And this puts into perspective even more, as we've been sort of hinting at here, his humbling of himself to come into this world, take on humanity, take on our sin, and save us. Someone this great <laughs> becomes a child, becomes subject to this fallen world of sin and suffering and death. Creator becomes subject to creation that he might redeem it from the plight of sin. And yet at the same time, he's Alpha and Omega in some real sense. This was his design all along so that he might display the riches of his grace and kindness toward those who are in Christ. His, his greatness is unsearchable. I mean, so we're not just talking about his greatness unsearchable in terms of his bigness, but also in terms of what he does. I mean, he just, his greatness is unsearchable. This great, infinite, eternal God becomes a human being. His greatness is just absolutely unsearchable. You can say true things about it, but at the end of the day, you just have to worship. You just have to say, this is my God. I can say true things about you. I can know the reality of who you are and what you've done. But at the end of the day, you are God and I am not. I am clay and you are potter. We have to keep a sense of God's greatness, his infinitude, his, his eternality, or we'll seek out a substitute greatness. And oftentimes, idolatry can just come about becomes because God becomes small and distant rather than great. So we should never stop believing and reflecting on the greatness of God. So God is infinite in terms of his bigness. He's also eternal. So Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Yeah, I don't know. He's great. I'll say great. I mean, it seems like it's outside of those boundaries. The point isn't that he's big. It's that big doesn't encompass. Big doesn't even begin to describe. Right. The highest heavens cannot contain you. I mean, he's trying to give some sense of the scale. Right, but... He's only doing that for us. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but it's still true. I mean, it's still some sense true. What else are you going to say? Yeah, yeah. You can't escape him no matter what you do or where you go. 
Right. All right, he's eternal. This is why, again, when you begin to talk about the character of God, you're like, I'm going to say as much as I can. Psalm 91 through 4. Now, now, also what's interesting is, and I've said this before, is that God's attributes don't come to us in a systematic theology. You know, it's not like Psalm, Psalm 84 has all the list, characters and attributes of God listed out in sequence. They come to us in terms of how they will comfort us or how they will give us hope or um, those kinds of things. So listen to Psalm 90. And this all has to do with God being eternal and everlasting. Um, he says, verse 1, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Every generation. You know, there's different things we can think about God. But one of the things that the psalmist thinks about God is that he's home. God is home. He's our dwelling place. Right? That's just a sweet thought. That, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you our God, you turn man into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. A thousand years. It's easier to think of our sort of our future continuing on and on forever than to think of an existence without a start date. Right? It's kind of easier to kind of think of, yeah, we're going to exist forever now. It's very hard for us, you know, you hear this especially in kids, um, thinking about someone existing without a beginning. But this is what they say, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are our God. This is how. This is why He can be the dwelling place of every generation, because He always has existed and always will exist. But from everlasting to everlasting is what the psalmist says here. God has no beginning. The thing about it is, is our mind cannot comprehend infinity. Right. Right. So right. Therefore, that's why we have faith. Yep. And that's what He's going to see in us, to feel, to be able to see in us. So kids, my kids anyway, oftentimes ask me, I don't know if your kids ask you this, who created God? Your kids ask you that? Yeah, my kids ask me that. Silas asked me that like maybe once, once or twice a week. Um, Dad, who created God? I mean, he'll just flat ask me just totally random. He did. So Dad, who created God? And I say, no one. And then he'll say, so how did he create himself? I'm like... He just, it's hard for him to grasp that reality, that he's the only being ever who never had a beginning. Yeah.
from everlasting. Yeah. So there's a good verse for that answering that question for your kids. Um, Psalm 135, 13. Psalm 135, 13. Again, talking about God as eternal and his being. Psalm 135, 13. Again, recounting God's dealings with Israel, verse 12. And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Or literally, your name, O Lord, forever. Um, it's kind of the, I think it's like the original idea there is he's just saying that the name, the very essence and being of God is forever. Your memorial or your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. Again, because God is everlasting, every generation beginning with Adam remembers the Lord and his essential name is everlasting. Obviously, this harkens back to Exodus 3 where God says his name, right? The divine name. I am who I am to Moses. Um, so, and then the book of Revelation, you have the language of God who who was, who is, and who is to come. This again captures the fact that God has been, is, and always will be. Um, I got a few more minutes, not really, but kind of. Um, let me just go ahead and finish this. And then God is unchanging. So Malachi 3.6, Malachi 3.6. So the Lord here is saying that he's going to restore Jerusalem and Judah. They'll be pleasing to the Lord in the future. This is talking about that era to come where John the Baptist ushers in the Messiah and the new covenants established. Then verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So God has a promise that's, that's there for Jacob that began back in Genesis. And God says this promise to that promised seed will be established. And what's it rooted in? It's rooted in the fact that God does not change. And so here again, it's not just this rigid definition of the immutability of God. God is saying that my purposes, my character will not change because I don't change. And this is to give Jacob, to give you and I comfort. That's, that's what's going on here. Um, so God's character, when you say that God is unchanging, um, this brings about certain implications right? Um, God didn't say, I'm just not going to change on, on, on this particular item. He just says, I don't change. And therefore that's why this is going to come to pass. God doesn't fluctuate in his promises or in his character and his purposes. Therefore, Jacob will live. So that's, that's our, and you know, in some ways election is very much tied to this whole re reality of immutability, uh, which we don't have time to go into. Psalm 102, Psalm 102, and then we'll end with this one. Psalm 102, 25. Psalm 
Psalm 102, 23. He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. So in contrast to creation that will change, God's going to roll it up like a scroll, right? God is the same. His character before creation, at creation, after the fall of man, during redemptive history, at the judgment, and when he creates a new heavens and new earth, he is the same. His character and being will never change. God does not learn, grow, develop, or morph, he is the same. We grow with our experiences, don't we? We, we grow in our knowledge, our understanding of things. This is not the Lord. Um, we can grow in these things, but not God. God will always be unchangeably full of knowledge, unchangeably full of love, unchangeably just and righteous forever, unchangeably compassionate and perfectly so. God will never change. And I was thinking about this a while ago when I was studying one time. I, you, know, you study and you, you want God to fill your heart, but I mean, I had some pretty flat emotions studying, studying through some of this. And I asked the Lord to give me some insight to prepare. And my faith was in the fact that God has answered me 10,000 times for these kinds of prayers. Um, and so, because I know God doesn't change, I'm going to ask him again and lo and behold, he does, and, and he answers. Uh, he loves to answer the cries of his people. He never runs out of love for me to open my mind when I'm studying to teach. Um, it's, it's amazing. So take heart in God's unchangeability, his immutability, that he doesn't change. If he ever loved you, he loved you forever. And um, now saying that God doesn't change does not mean that he does not have emotional responses toward acts in history that are heinous or glorious. Um, we certainly want to be careful there too, right? We want to say that just because God knows all things and God is unchanging, we don't want to make God to, to be, you know, as I've said before, a piece of granite in the sky. Um, I was just thinking about this, you know, even us, we all know that we're all going to die. But I can guarantee you, most of you cry at funerals, you know. It doesn't take that emotional element out of it, even though you know things are going to transpire and take place. And even though God has sort of known how history is going to unfold, he still engages in the emotional responses of, of, of good and evil. Um, and again, um, some of these things become mysterious, but the reality is we're created in God's image. And so many ways we are created in his image, but one way is emotionally. Um, has to be. Um, and so, although God is unchanging, um, he is not without feeling. And that's so critical, isn't it, for how you relate to God. Um, I feel like many, many reformed circles do not have that. Many reformed circles trust in a confession and trust in in bullet points, not in that personal, that personal 
um, God who, who has deep love, deep affection. What does he say to Israel? In all of your affliction, I was afflicted. Like God was afflicted. So that's, it's important to say that when I say unchanging, I don't mean unmoved with regard to him and his emotions. So any questions, comments? Got two minutes, so. Is that part of what? Lower than the angels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, the context of like Malachi is, I don't change, that's why Jacob's not consumed. I'm not going to go back on my promise. I don't change, right? Um, so God's security for his people is rooted in that immutability. And, um, and of course, that is even more manifest in the coming of Jesus, right? But um, so, yeah. But I don't know how to say, when I say God changed, I would say yes and no, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> All right, let's let's pray, and then we have to scram thirty seconds over there to the non-sanctuary to to meet. All right, let's pray. Father, we just praise you. We praise you for being great beyond our imagining. Um, Lord, the highest of heavens cannot contain you. Um, Lord, you are infinite. Your greatness is unsearchable, uh, and yet you hear the cries of your people. You are attentive to us. You are a very present help in times of trouble. And Lord, we're so thankful that as we worship you this morning, Lord, countless thousands and hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions and millions of people, Lord, this morning, um, this season, Lord, worshiping you. um, And they can because you are spirit and because you are everywhere and because you are great and worthy of worship. And so, Lord, we just thank you that just that um, you've brought us to yourself to show us that Lord this morning as we sing your praises that we would sing with these great truths in mind and as we listen to your word we'll recognize Lord that you have revealed yourself in many ways but one way is certainly in your scriptures and that we would take these things to heart but thank you for who you are thank you that we can trust in who you are your character will not change Um, Your love won't change. Your righteousness won't change. Your integrity to your word will not change. And Lord, we just praise you for these glorious truths. In Jesus' name, amen.